Before we get started, there's another great podcast that I'd love to tell you about. It's called Pessimist's Archive. In each episode, host Jason Pfeiffer asks the question, why do people keep resisting new things? The show travels back in time to a moment that a new technology or innovation was introduced, something that today we think of as being totally commonplace. And they explore why everyone was freaking out about it. Their hope is this. By seeing how repetitive and often silly yesterday's fears were, they can begin to defang today's fears. Pessimist Archive is available everywhere you like to listen to podcasts. I recommend beginning with the episode called Comic Books. At a town hall last April, a woman asked Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders this question. Senator Sanders, you have said that you believe that people with felony records should be allowed to vote while in prison. Does this mean that you would support enfranchising people like the Boston Marathon bomber, a convicted terrorist and murderer? And Sanders, known for his progressive politics, didn't hold back. If somebody commits a serious crime, they're going to be punished. They may be in jail for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, their whole lives. That's what happens But I think the right to vote is inherent to our democracy. Yes, even for terrible people. Because once you start chipping away and you say, well, that guy committed a terrible crime, not going to let him vote. Or that person did that, not going to let that person vote. You're running down a slippery slope. Sanders' statement completely divided the media. A few people thought that maybe he has a point. Taking away some people's right to vote is a slippery slope. If you're going to go picking and choosing who should get to vote while you're in jail, I don't see that's a practical thing to do. Why, when the Supreme Court has recently affirmed every other constitutional right, why do we take away their right to vote? Others were flabbergasted that anyone would suggest that a terrorist deserves the right to vote. I literally spat my drink out and it was a nice glass of red wine, so it was a senseless waste of good alcohol. It is not hard to say people who commit acts of terror in this country should not only be punished, but God forbid they should have any rights. This may shock you, but when you're in prison, you lose rights. It's called prison, not spring break. But here's the thing. It's not just terrorists that aren't allowed to vote. There are over six million people in the United States who've been disenfranchised because of felony convictions. Only one of those six million people is the Boston Marathon bomber. Most aren't on death row. Most didn't commit a violent crime, and most aren't even in prison anymore. So how did a country founded on the principle of no taxation without representation come to revoke voting rights for more people than live in Wisconsin? Should disenfranchisement be part of a felon's punishment, or is this just democratic censorship? Let's find out. I'm Matthew Billy, and you're listening to Bleeped, a podcast about censorship and the people who stand up to it. In this episode, we'll explore the history of felony disenfranchisement and how it came to impact so many people. We'll start by looking at losing the right to vote through the eyes of a man from Alabama. Alfonso Tucker didn't start the day looking for trouble. He and his friend just wanted to clean their cars. I drove his girlfriend's car while he drove his car to the car wash. Alfonso lives in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And back then, in 1991, his friend cleaning his car had a bit of a reputation around town. He was known to be selling drugs or whatnot. And so 
the police officer at that time saw him up there, and he just have, so happened to pull it over. I mean, the, how do you recognize you? Do you recognize the cars? Yeah, he recognized the cars because he had a, like a two-tone Regal with bullet hole rims in it, I believe. This particular officer had a bit of a reputation himself. He was a black officer from the west side of Tuscaloosa. His name was Officer Freddie Bowles. You know, like I said, I, I never had any problems with him, but that's what the word in the street, you know. He'll take your, your dope, your money, and let you go instead of taking you to jail. Alfonso watched the police car pull into the parking lot, and then he panicked. We were out there smoking marijuana. I was behind the um, vacuum pump, and so when we saw him, we just eventually, you know, we ran. Officer Bose jumped out of the passenger side of the police car and chased after him. He came up behind, and uh, he pushed me from behind. And um, I fell, and I I remember scarring up my knees. Then Officer Bose got closer. He grabbed me when I was trying to get back up from behind, and he told me to get down, and I told him, you got me. He told me to get down again, and I said, you got me, you know put the cuffs on me. And so he ended up walking me towards the gravel on the side of the road. So he started then trying to rough me up, trying to throw me down. Alfonso was not eager to be thrown on the gravel. My attitude back then was, I didn't care who you was, don't put your hands on me like that. So me and him got to tussling and... uh, They grappled for a few seconds, and soon Alfonso found himself on top. I came on top. I was still trying to run, but he wouldn't let me go. And I was hitting him, trying to make him turn me loose. When Alfonso started hitting Officer Bose, Bose pulled out his gun. He shot me twice. One exit out of my back, and one was enlarged in my stomach. Then Alfonso fell on the ground. I was laying on the ground, trying to get away from him. I was crawling on my stomach, and... uh, I remember looking back at him, and he was laying flat on his back with his gun in his hand. Alfonso didn't know what Officer Bose was going to do, so he just looked forward and kept crawling as fast as he could. And as I was crawling from him, you know, I heard another shot, and I'm thinking, man, he's trying to kill me over, you know, nothing. But the third shot didn't hit Alfonso. Instead, it went through Officer Bose's left hand. His partner pulled up and asked him, was he okay? He saw me laying on the ground, and... uh He began to kick me, and then he uh, took the cuffs and handcuffed me. Soon, two ambulances arrived, one for Alfonso and one for Officer Bose. When they arrived at the hospital, Bose was treated for a broken jaw and a gunshot wound in his hand. Alfonso was treated for two gunshot wounds in his stomach. It was on like a liquid diet to a soft diet. And eventually they started giving me solid food. And also they had like a 24-hour police presence at my door. After three months of living in the hospital under police supervision, Alfonso was finally healthy enough to go home. A year later, the trial happened and the jury convicted him of assaulting a police officer. They sent me to Draper. I had a 10 split two. And with a 10 split two, if you do two straight years without getting in any trouble, you can come home in two years. But if you don't and you get in trouble, you have to do that 10-year sentence. What is prison life like for you? 
while um, once you're being exposed to prison, prison life, it never goes away. I still remember my AIS number. You know, you have to wait, take a shower, wait in line to get your laundry. You have to wait in line to eat. You have to wait in line to even get a cup of ice in the summertime. No air conditioning or anything like that. Just like a big barn with windows, bars on the windows. They had cattle, and you can actually smell the cow manure, especially at night. So when you smell cow manure now, does it, like, remind you of being incarcerated? Yeah, if I... (laughs) Where I live, you know, it's a cow, you know, uh, down where I live at now. And it it brings me back to, you know, Draper. Yeah, it does. But besides waiting in endless lines and smelling manure all night, something was even harder for Alfonso. Before he began his sentence, he married his girlfriend, and soon after she became pregnant. While Alfonso was in prison, she gave birth to a healthy baby girl. But he wasn't allowed to be there. How did it feel to not be able to be there? Terrible. Terrible. A lot go through your mind then. Man, I shouldn't have went up to the car wash. I shouldn't have. You know, you have a lot of regrets, you know. When was the first time you saw your new daughter? She was six weeks. Six weeks. Six weeks old. Did your wife bring her to the prison? Right, right. Were you allowed to hold your daughter? Yes, yes. How did you feel at that moment? Oh, like a proud father. You know, like a proud father. Man, it just really made my day. And I think her baby, you know, had had my head clear enough that I want to just come home. So I tried to stay out of trouble. Like he said before, Alfonso had a 10-split-2 sentence. If he behaved, he'd be out in two years. One mistake and he'd be in prison till his daughter was almost ten. The thought of not being part of his daughter's childhood was unbearable. So Alfonso made up his mind to avoid trouble. Instead, he started reading lots of books. I was reading a lot while I was incarcerated. And I think a friend of mine, a cellmate of mine, he gave me his book. It was a book on African Americans that did, you know, great things. And so I was reading that and that's how I came across Medgar Evers. Medgar Evers was an Army veteran who fought in World War II. But when he came back home to Mississippi, the state wouldn't let him participate in the democracy he fought for. So he became a civil rights activist who fought for the right of black people to vote. So when I read in in how he was registering black people to vote in Mississippi and he was assassinated, you know, it kind of like took me back while, you know, they actually was killing black people just for registering and organizing black people to vote. So I just made it up in my mind, and I really never really cared about voting until then, that when I came home, I was going to register and I was going to start participating in the voting process. Alfonso never did get into trouble, so he was released after two years in 1996. Soon after then, I got a voter registration card. I registered as an independent. After registering, Alfonso cast a ballot in every election, and he didn't go alone. We always did it as a family thing. We did. Ever since they was old enough, really, to walk, we always took them, me and my wife, took them to the voting poll with us because I was instilling them the same thing I read about Mega Evers. The Tuckers voted as a family in every presidential election. They did this in 2000, 2004, 2008, 2012. But then something happened that threw a wrench into their family tradition. 
Alfonso received a letter from the state of Alabama. I think it was in April 2013, and it was saying that I was a convicted felon and that I was no longer eligible to vote. So when you received that letter, what did it feel like? Well, I had a lot of emotions running through me because I was um, thinking about Mega Evers, what he went through, the struggle that he went through. And, you know, I was like, wow. You know, I was surprised. I was uh, a little angry and upset. So why did the state of Alabama disenfranchise Alfonso in 2013? Let's start at the beginning, the very beginning. Most states have always had criminal disenfranchisement laws, but they were limited. They mostly focused on people who've committed political crimes, like stuffing a ballot box or bribing a politician. But then after the Civil War, everything changed. The United States passed the 15th Amendment, allowing black people to vote for the first time. And former slave states? They weren't happy about it. The South was very interested in finding any number of ways to disenfranchise African Americans. My name is Danielle Lang, and I co-direct the Voting Rights and Redistricting Program at Campaign Legal Center. Southern states, but not just Southern states, during this era passed laws that disenfranchised people with basically any conviction whatsoever. Alabama was one of these states. As transcripts show, during the state's 1901 Constitutional Convention, they had one very specific goal in mind. They just kind of said the purpose of the 1901 convention is to maintain white supremacy in the South. One of the ways they intended to do this was by using criminal disenfranchisement. They put into the Constitution, rather, a provision that said if you have any crimes involving moral turpitude, so that meant misdemeanors, quote-unquote, involving moral turpitude, and then also this kind of like long laundry list of petty crimes— the list included things like vagrancy and adultery. Several legislators suggested that they were picking these various crimes because they believed them to be crimes that blacks would be more likely to be convicted of. So lawmakers designed Alabama's disenfranchisement system to target the state's African-American population. And it worked. Right from the jump, black people were disenfranchised more often than white people at a rate of 10 to 1. After the 1901 Constitutional Convention, Alabama's disenfranchisement law didn't change for a very long time. No one challenged the moral turpitude law until 84 years later in 1985. Two Alabama residents lost their voting rights because they wrote a bad check. They thought that was unfair, so they took it all the way to the Supreme Court in the case of Hunter v. Underwood. And the Supreme Court kind of looked at the very clear evidence on the record from the 1901 Constitutional Convention that that provision in particular was animated by racial animus and by racial discrimination, and they struck down that particular provision, and those people regained their right to vote. So Alabama's list of crimes involving moral turpitude was found to be illegal. But the decision didn't stop Alabama from disenfranchising people entirely. So the state tried a different strategy— one that isn't obviously racially discriminatory. Then in 1996, Alabama passed a new provision of their constitution. It reinserted the moral turpitude language that the court had found so problematic in 1986. It, it now disenfranchised people with felonies, quote-unquote, involving moral turpitude. Alabama couldn't let the moral turpitude language go. 
And this time, the way they got around the Hunter v. Underwood decision was not so much to make a list of crimes that doesn't racially discriminate. They just didn't make a list at all. There was no definition of what felonies involved moral turpitude whatsoever. And it was kind of left to the discretion of registrars. Every county in Alabama had its own registrar's office. The registrars received very little training from the state and often had to interpret the definition of crimes of moral turpitude on the fly. And so I talked to people who registered to vote and were allowed to vote in one county and then moved, and they were not allowed to vote in another county because it was all left up to the registrar's discretion. And it could change depending on when a registrar turned over in a single county and all sorts of kind of arbitrariness, not the way that you would think the right to vote would be doled out. In 2017, the Alabama legislature finally created a list of what crimes involve moral turpitude. But the list arrived a little too late to help Alfonso Tucker. Despite having a felony conviction on his record, he was somehow able to register to vote in 1997. Maybe the registrar just overlooked his conviction. But then in 2013, for reasons not made public, Alabama decided to retroactively remove Alfonso from the voter roll. How did you try to fight? What was the first step? Well... I really didn't know how. I really did. And I really just gave up. But then, at the urging of some friends, Alfonso attended a voter registration drive. And that's when the guy told me that they had that I owe $135. Alfonso learned that Alabama was willing to let him vote again if he paid a fine that he never knew he had. The state claimed that the $135 was left over from his court case two decades ago. Why they didn't include this information in the original letter or let Alfonso know before the letter, we can only guess. Before that, they didn't tell me that because they would have told me that then I would have paid them $135 back then. So I waited. I didn't even pay it then. Alfonso didn't have a spare $135 just lying around. It took him a year to save the money, but he did eventually pay the fine. He drove to the clerk's office in Montgomery, handed her the money, She handed him back a receipt and said all debts were settled. Alfonso could register to vote. Then a few weeks later, he tried to register to vote back in Tuscaloosa. And the clerk told him something different. They said I had another charge. They said I owe on another fine. And I told the lady that that ain't what Montgomery said. So Alfonso leaves and tries to sort the situation out at a different government office. And I told the pardon and parole board, that I had paid the money that they told me to pay. And um, the lady told me, send her a copy of the receipt. And I gave her the receipt. And she told me, said it'll be in two weeks. Probably take up to two weeks. So two weeks went by. I didn't hear anything from him. So now Alfonso didn't know what to do. But eventually someone suggested that he call one of Danielle Lang's colleagues at the Campaign Legal Center. She told me, take a picture of it, take a picture of the receipt and send it to her. And so that's what I did. And so when she looked at it, she called me back. It was 20 minutes later and said, you only owe $4. Apparently, Alfonso never owed the second $135. He never even owed the first $135. All he owed was four. Wow, $4? And they made me pay $135? Now that we know Alfonso's story, someone who is not the Boston Marathon bomber, 
we ask, should Alfonso permanently lose his right to vote? Should he never lose his right to vote? Should he only lose it until certain conditions are met? And if so, what are those conditions? Each state has answered these questions differently. 48 states have disenfranchisement laws. Some allow people to vote immediately after they leave prison. Others wait for parole to finish and fines to be paid. And others still never allow ex-felons to vote. And the number of people these laws impact is staggering. States with the strictest disenfranchisement laws, states like Kentucky, Mississippi, and even Florida until Amendment 4 passed in the most recent election, have disenfranchised roughly 10%, 1 in 10 people, of their entire population. And these laws disproportionately impact black people. In Kentucky, 25%, or 1 in 4 African Americans, can't vote. So how did these numbers get so high? Well, in the 1980s, felony disenfranchisement became entangled in another controversial issue, mass incarceration. Due to things like the war on crime, the war on drugs, harsher sentencing guidelines, the United States prison population swelled from only 200,000 people in 1980 to more than 2 million by 2010. More people now live in prisons than live in Nebraska. And very often, even after people leave prison, they aren't allowed to vote. Like we mentioned before, it's estimated that 6.1 million people, more people than live in Wisconsin, are disenfranchised due to felony convictions. Now here's the thing. The federal government has tried to address this issue in the past. Back in 2001, after the Gore v. Bush presidential election was decided in Florida by slightly more than 2,000 votes, people realized for the first time that removing ex-felons from the voting rolls might actually impact election results. But when the Senate debated the issue, Republicans pushed back, arguing that felony disenfranchisement is actually a good thing. For example, Senator Mitch McConnell made the argument that allowing felons to vote dilutes the purity of the ballot box. States have a significant interest in reserving the vote for those who have abided by the social contract that forms the foundation of a representative democracy. Those who break our laws should not have a voice in electing those who make and enforce our laws. Those who break our laws should not dilute the vote of law-abiding citizens. Another argument is that ex-felons don't have the moral capacity to make good voting choices. Here's former Senator Jeff Sessions. A person who violates serious laws of a state or federal government forfeit their right to participate in those uh, activities of that government that their judgment and character is such that they ought not to be making decisions on the most important issues facing our country. And a third argument is that ex-felons will band together and vote as a block against people who are tough on crime. Would it intimidate or encourage or diminish judges who run for election or prosecutors who run for election in some way to not be as aggressive? Uh, Would it uh, uh, allow votes to occur against a strong law and order candidate that might otherwise not occur? These three arguments are predicated on the idea that only morally irredeemable people commit felonies. And once they do, they can never be rehabilitated. In response, Democratic senators argued that that is not true. People can be rehabilitated. Plus, many disenfranchisement laws were created as a form of democratic censorship to keep black people from voting. But strangely enough, none of the bad stuff the Republicans predicted has ever been proven true. Ex-felons have never voted as a block to oust a sheriff, and there is no evidence that they dilute the purity of the ballot box. On the flip side, there's evidence that enfranchising ex-felons has positive benefits. One scholar I spoke with actually found that when we allow ex-felons to vote, it doesn't just improve their lives. 
but it can improve society as a whole. In my research, what I'm focusing on is the effects of disenfranchisement on the people who are actually being disenfranchised. My name is Victoria Shinneman. I'm a political science professor at the University of Pittsburgh. To study that, I wanted to look at people sort of right before and after they had a change in their voting rights. And Virginia was this really incredible opportunity. In Virginia, the governor decides if an ex-felon has the right to vote or not. The last governor, Terry McAuliffe, used this authority to restore voting rights for 150,000 former felons. The state tried to notify each of them by mail, but there was a problem. People didn't get the letters. The state's database of addresses was outdated. But for Victoria's study, this was actually a good thing. So I thought this is a really excellent opportunity where you have potentially 150,000 people that just got their right to vote restored, but for whatever reason, a lot of them might not know it yet. So Victoria began recruiting people for her study. She placed ads in local newspapers and Craigslist. She left flyers in restaurants, and eventually 100 people responded. Half of them were placed into a control group and not told that their voting rights were restored. The other half were told. I would say, you might not know this, but there's a pretty good chance your voting rights have already been restored. And if you want, we can look it up right now. And most people would say, yeah, they'd let me look it up. And a number of people in the study would find out like right then and there, sometimes after decades of being disenfranchised, that they now had the right to vote. You know, they come out of prison, they're trying to rebuild their life, but they don't have the right to vote, and it makes them feel like this second-class citizen. It's like this lasting stigma, and it makes it really hard for people to transition from this idea and this identity of being a criminal and to feel like you're sort of this full-fledged member of society. And when these people learned, that, right, not just that their right has been restored, but right, the governor of the state signed an executive order with their name on it, restoring their voting rights, it just, it was... The, the reactions were extraordinary. Like, I would get goosebumps, and I, I, I get goosebumps even just talking about it. People would cry. They'd say things like, uh, well, I can't wait to tell my family, or I feel like a citizen again. Being able to see that happen right, live and in person was, it was a big reward of the research. It was really incredible. The next phase of Victoria's study was to see if being enfranchised changed people's behavior. Would their level of engagement change during the next election? And she found that, yes, people were more engaged. But it wasn't just that. People's entire perception of government changed as well. Their perceived fairness of the system was higher. When they reported how representative they felt government was, they, they felt like government was more representative. I also asked questions about trust in the police and trust in the criminal justice system. And what I found is that among subjects, when people were told that their voting rights had been restored, they reported higher trust in the police and the criminal justice system. Victoria believes that when a person gets out of prison, helping them feel like they're part of the society they're returning to could potentially make a big impact. One of the big upshots of this is like if you look at the literature on re-entry, post-prison re-entry, some of the biggest predictors of whether a person is able to successfully reintegrate into society after being released from prison are these very types of attitudes, these pro-social, pro-democratic, pro-community attitudes. When those are strong, it makes it easier for people to reintegrate. And that means that they're, right, ultimately that it's going to lead to less crime.
Alfonso Tucker reintegrated with society. He had a wife who loved him, a daughter to raise, and admiration for Medgar Evers, who lost his life fighting for the right of African Americans to vote. Alfonso has followed in Evers' footsteps and now helps other former felons try to get their voting rights back. So are you, are you throwing, like, uh, voter registration drives and everything? Yes, yes. We meet um, every third Thursday at the McDonough Hughes Center. And uh, really where people come in, we engage them, tell them about what hindering them from voting. So it's, it's pretty much everything that you didn't have when you were trying to register to vote. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And with the help of the Campaign Legal Center, Alfonso did figure out his $4 fine situation. So now that you have your voting rights back, are you paying attention to the Democratic primary at all? Yes. Have you decided who you're going to vote for yet? Well, not really, but um, I got a listening ear for what all they have to say. This episode was produced by me, Matthew Billy. The theme song was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. The remote recording was done by Melissa Kaplan, Dan Yost of Just Records, and of course, Santo Moss and Stone Nitty from Two-Tone Cinema. Special thanks to everyone from the Campaign Legal Center, especially Corey Goldstone. And huge thanks to our guests, Alfonso Tucker, Danielle Lang, and Victoria Shineman. Be sure to subscribe to Bleeped on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, or visit our website, bleep.org. Thanks for listening.